Where do ideas come from? I had an idea earlier today. I thought to myself, having compared the mind to a kind of singularity from whence ideas come, I really should try to explain myself a little further. I said in a podcast recently titled Epiphenomena, where I considered the nature of consciousness and its possible relationship to explanatory creativity. You can find that episode, by the way, on YouTube or go to the Substack article where I link to it. What I said there in that episode was, let me quote myself, quote, what I am saying is we people are the equivalent of a kind of singularity. From one singularity came all of existence, apparently, but from others come ideas. From the singularity that existed at the moment of the Big Bang came everything. What if the analogue of a singularity exists in the mind of a person and this initiates ideas? If a black hole were a naked singularity, perhaps TV sets could come out of them, so it has been said. And the reason? Because the regular laws of physics as we understand them break down inside singularities. Our understanding of causation fails. TV sets may as well come out of such things, therefore, because regular laws of physics do not seem to apply. Very well. So what if people are the only real naked singularities? What if TV sets can come out of people? After all, in truth, they did. TV sets came from the imaginations of people. It's either that, which at least explains something, or... Television sets came from the first singularity, that which inflated and expanded at the moment of creation. From that Big Bang event came hydrogen, stars, galaxies, planets, and eventually people and television sets. So television sets do indeed come from singularities, whether it's the Big Bang or something in the mind of a person, make your choice. But one of those is merely predictive, the other at least has a chance of being explanatory, end quote. Since I wrote, recorded and published that, multiple viewers and listeners have taken my remarks not as the analogies or metaphors I thought I was expressing, but as literal explanations. They are not. I rarely provide good explanations of things like consciousness, creativity, free will or anything of that sort because... I do not think we have good explanations of any of those things yet. I have some hazy conjectures at best that the idea that ideas come from something like a singularity was one of those hazy conjectures. A naked singularity, if it exists in physics, is a place where the laws of physics themselves break down, so it is said. Or rather, we should say our knowledge of the laws of physics theories including general relativity and quantum theory, break down. And hence, we cannot give a good account in physical terms of things like what causes what or what is expected to happen next. In other words, we are unable to make predictions as our dynamical laws, as we understand them, fail us in such a place. A naked singularity. The universe itself, all of physical reality may have come from a naked singularity of this kind. Again, go to the Substack article for links on all of this stuff. Namely, a naked singularity is a state of physical reality that lies beyond general relativity and quantum theory. 
in terms of those theories being able to account for such things. And hence, the best we can say in terms of those theories is we do not know what caused the universe. Our laws of physics, as we currently understand them, cannot predict the universe coming into being. A naked singularity, therefore, could give rise to the whole universe. Everything. As David Deutsch writes in The Beginning of Infinity on page 175, quote, as Hawking once put it, television sets could come out of a naked singularity, end quote. He, Deutsch, then goes on to say, in essence, that there is no reason to think the Big Bang was a singularity of that sort, but rather something more benign. In any case, singularities, naked or otherwise, are bizarre phenomena. If it's true that the universe itself came from a naked singularity, and if Hawking is correct that from a naked singularity we may as well expect anything to come, television sets or whatnot, then if we look at a place where television sets really do come, namely the imagination of people, I was speculating that perhaps the mind contains within it something analogous to a naked singularity, or perhaps a singularity of some kind, perhaps, maybe, again, of some kind, but I don't know, this is all rather wild speculation, so perhaps I should be a little more precise then and cease speaking in riddles and analogies. In any case, I had the idea I should explain all this a little more. Now, where did that idea of mine come from? And where are these ideas I am typing out right now, or indeed speaking to you about right now, coming from? My mind, obviously. Me, in other words. But where in me, and how? In other words, in the most general case, let me ask... Where do ideas come from? If it's not literal singularities in the mind, then where? Let us first take a step back and ask what we're even talking about. What even is an idea? Well, an idea is a conjecture. It's a guess. It may be an attempt to say something that might be true, or it could be an attempt to say something false or to deceive, that is, a lie. Or it could be an attempt to say something useful or beautiful, or an attempt to say something useless, mean, insulting, or cruel, and so on. This is to say it may be explicit in part, in other words, expressible in language, or it may be largely inexplicit, not properly expressible in language, yet, because we don't know how. Like, for example, the idea of how it feels to be weightless or falling for a moment, a sensation many can recall at will, yet not easily describable to someone who's never felt that. Or, for example, what the colour green looks like, if you're trying to describe this, say, to a blind person. Ideas can come to us for many reasons and often unbidden, but not always. One can sit and reflect upon a problem and ideas, sometimes pleasant or useful, can more readily come when we are not distracted or concerned or fearful. Some ideas for some of us come best when we're walking or in silence rather than sitting in a noisy place. Especially those kind of ideas we find most important to us, namely solutions to our problems, what to do next, how to get past this particular predicament. An idea, therefore, is a kind of guess and it may be a kind of knowledge. But not all knowledge counts as an idea, 
nor vice versa. How are guesses and knowledge and ideas and similar concepts related? I do not think this field is a precision science, or indeed philosophy for that matter, just yet. But the diagram in the accompanying Substack article may be of use to at least some degree in summarising a part of epistemology, as I understand it. And best explained by David Deutsch, following on from the work mainly initiated by Karl Popper, with some supplementary additions by Richard Dawkins, among other people. If you've got access to the diagram and you're looking at it, I wish to emphasise that the diagram is not supposed to be either definitive nor exhaustive, merely informative to some extent, as a hint to how some of these epistemological notions are distinct yet related. For one thing, there are many more categories we could apply. The explicit and implicit versus inexplicit distinctions in knowledge, rational versus anti-rational memes, and so on. Also worthy of note, I am simply taking so-called Popperian epistemology to be epistemology, the study of the creation and growth of knowledge, in much the same way a physicist just takes quantum physics to be physics the study of energy and matter, and so on. This is not to say that in either case, Popperian epistemology or quantum physics, that all has been explained or there are not deep mysteries left to unravel. Of course there are. But it is to say we've moved on beyond certain other ideas that have been shown false and flawed. For example, in epistemology, induction, justified true belief, confidence levels, subjective feelings, and so on, all of that stuff that forms a part of other kinds of epistemology, in much the same way we have moved beyond Newtonian classical mechanics and classical electrodynamics as being a literal explanation of how motion, gravity, and energy works, or indeed how neo-Darwinism has replaced creationism. Uh, that might be a better analogy, actually. In fact, that is more than an analogy, indeed. It is for this reason I have deliberately avoided categories like belief or justified truth or probable assertion and so on. Those things don't appear in my diagram. I think all of those and related ideas or synonymous concepts, they're entirely misconceived. They're not a part of epistemology. So they're not on my diagram. So let's look a little bit more closely at what I'm trying to picture here for the purpose of figuring out what ideas are and therefore where they come from. We're going to consider the various intersections and complements of knowledge with ideas. What is common to all instances of ideas is that they are abstractions, which is to say they could in principle be communicated and represented in various physical forms. Or, to be a little more precise still, an idea, like knowledge, can be said to be independent of its physical substrate. We humans have ideas and they are, in our minds, represented as patterns of neuronal firings. We don't have any good explanations as to precisely how this works in a brain. We can write down our ideas, however, as ink on paper, or speak them, as I'm doing right now, vibrations we call sound in the air. We can represent them as pixels on a screen, which might be how you're reading this if you're looking at the Substack article, patterns of light and dark. But the idea is not identical to, for example, ink on paper, or, for that matter, neuronal firings, and so on. These are just ways of representing those ideas. For my purposes, I shall say, an idea is an abstraction that captures possibility. 
So let's zoom in and explain parts of this diagram. And let me start as I admonish anyone interested in epistemology to do with science. It is no accident I've put science and related intellectual pursuits like mathematics and morality and so on at the heart of my diagram here. It's inside the green circle there. We must start here as people interested in epistemology for if epistemology is to serve us any purpose at all, it is to serve the purpose of solving problems in the real world. And the real world is the business of science as well as mathematics, morality, economics, philosophy and so on namely all those other subjects. Epistemology is not done in the abstract or by considering trope examples of whether tables exist or what the nature of perceptions are. It is to consider how knowledge is created. And to understand that, we should look to science as the preeminent example of where knowledge is being created. So let's not merely imagine what goes on in the abstract. Let us use the tools of science and reason upon science itself to explain what it is that we observe to be going on there. We have a problem. How did we devise theories of the atom or of gravity or the diversity of species or how rocks form and so on? How did we move from any one of the theories about those things to something else? How did we go from the plum pudding model of the atom to the modern quantum idea? Or from the Newtonian force of gravity to Einstein's curved space-time, or from biblical-style creationism to evolution by natural selection. Those are real problems of how we move from one explanation to a better explanation by correcting errors in what we say exists in the real world, and as a side effect, allowing us sometimes in some places to predict what's going to happen next. That is the centre of the bullseye. Maybe I should have coloured it red. <laughs> okay, so I've labelled that part of the diagram with the letter A. And A labels ideas that are good explanations. So they all count as not merely ideas, but knowledge, if they are explanations of reality. These are also memes as they go on to get replicated. Not all scientific knowledge counts as a good explanation, by the way especially in light of it being refuted. So Newtonian gravity, it counts as an explanation. It's knowledge and it's a meme. It gets replicated, but it's not a good explanation of gravity, given what we know about general relativity and observations like gravitational waves and Eddington's experiment and so on and so forth, which Newton's theory of gravity cannot account for. Therefore, it can't possibly be a good explanation of those things. But general relativity can be. Let's move on to the part of the diagram labelled B. Here we're considering the region bounded by the red circle but is outside the green circle. In other words, good explanations that are not scientific, moral, philosophical and so on. Good explanations can be just good explanations of, let's say, who one's family members are or how a certain dance is best performed. Some good explanations, like where you left your keys, won't count as memes, though they are knowledge. And the reason for that is, well, they don't get replicated. So although you know where you left your keys, you're never going to tell anyone else, and so you might very well forget the next day where you left your keys the day before, and so on it goes. Not all knowledge counts as being something that is going to be replicated. So it's not memetic. 
let's look at the part of the diagram I've labelled C. Here we've got the intersection of knowledge and ideas, and I'm calling that memes, or another way of saying that is that memes are ideas that go on to get replicated. Many memes are not, as I've just said, good explanations. They could just be cultural behaviours, for example. Ideas and knowledge, yes, but not explanatory in any sense, even if there are explanations for those things. Uh, jokes might fit into this category, as will songs, works of fiction, art of the kind that becomes popular to some extent, and so on. Some memes are rational. They propagate by making use of the critical faculties of their holders, and some are anti-rational. They propagate by disabling the critical faculties of their holders. But that distinction, notice, doesn't feature in my crude representation of these categories. In any case, anti-rational memes may often be a form of inexplicit knowledge. The holder just won't know they even hold them. The fear of criticising some idea might run very deep, well below conscious awareness. Let's look at the part of the diagram labelled D now. D is the region where it's knowledge that is not a good explanation and is not mimetic. It can be things you know that in fact aren't so at all and you might never communicate them. For example, you might be superstitious, let's say, and you think wearing your lucky red socks on the day you plan to propose to your sweetheart really is the reason that he or she says yes or even comes to factor in the explanation as to why they've said yes at all. Or perhaps your lucky red socks are the reason you never got COVID and so on. You might say you believe in the power of your lucky red socks or of prayer. You know it. And yet, it's false. Kind of like Newtonian gravity, but unlike Newtonian gravity, fails to actually solve any problem. It also never gets copied and passed on to another mind, so it doesn't count as a meme. And finally, the part of the diagram labelled E. Here we have ideas you have that don't count as knowledge, that you never think are true or useful, but are simply guesses that appear in consciousness only to be immediately, or almost immediately, refuted, for example. Or at least eventually refuted. Like, for example, uh, I left my keys on the kitchen counter. That could be an idea you have, that might be immediately refuted by observation, but they are in fact in your pocket after all. So that guess, the idea you have, is not knowledge, and it's not a meme, nor a good explanation. It's just a random idea that turns out to be false, and you immediately figure out it's false. Okay, so that's the way in which I think knowledge and guesses and ideas and memes and so on are kind of related in the Popperian view. But are we getting any closer to figuring out where ideas come from? Or what ideas are? Well, the classic philosophers from the 17th and 18th century, chief among them for my purposes right now, Descartes, uh, René Descartes, uh, Immanuel Kant and David Hume, uh, in fact, they're, they're just emblematic of many of those classic philosophers of that era from both the British and continental enlightenment. They were all most concerned about ideas, more so than knowledge. My business is, of course, usually to write and speak about knowledge and its creation. That's the reason for the podcast, after all, the Theory of Knowledge cast, podcast. But knowledge, technically, is a separate thing. Again, look at the diagram. Knowledge, on my view, I'm borrowing directly from Chiara Maletto, 
who herself is following in the footsteps of David Deutsch, himself, of course, in the lineage of Karl Popper, who likewise followed from Xenophanes of Colophon, who lived from 570 to 478 BC. What we think, and what I'm saying knowledge is, again from Marletto, is resilient information. Resilient here captures the quality of getting itself copied through error identification and correction over time and remaining instantiated in some physical substrate. This getting itself copied property happens precisely because something, people generally, find that information useful. Hence, it counts as knowledge. What makes the information useful? Well, that information solves some problem. And so long as that information continues to solve some problem, it will continue to get copied and transmitted, whether explicitly or indeed without a knower being present, Popper's deep insight. Like, for example, in a book, or more abstractly and implicitly still, in an object. My favourite examples are telescopes, which can be reverse-engineered by some intelligent creature to reveal the knowledge contained within of how to collect, focus and magnify light coming from an object. A telescope really contains that knowledge. Or indeed, a computer, which instantiates the knowledge, so we say, of laws of physics which allow for calculation or computation to occur, and whose circuits, transistors, capacitors can have represented in them, as for example, electrical potential energy, information in the form of binary digits, which, correctly interpreted, can be understood as likewise containing knowledge. So, in summary, knowledge is useful information. It can be called useful because it solves some problem, and because it is useful, it tends to get itself copied, or in other words, once instantiated in a physical substrate, tends to cause itself to remain so. Or, in other words, it is resilient. So, that's knowledge on Marletto, Deutsch and Popper's view. But what about ideas? They cannot be the same as knowledge because not all ideas are useful. Popper... Deutsch and Marletto all refer to ideas repeatedly throughout their work, but their focus, like mine, is rather more often on knowledge. After all, it is those ideas that count as knowledge, in particular explanatory knowledge, that transform the world, to borrow a part of the subtitle of The Beginning of Infinity. But if I wish to attempt an answer to the question, where do ideas come from, I had best refine what I mean by idea, in at least something like the way I just did with knowledge there. But as I say, Maletto, Deutsch and Popper do not refine idea in the way they do with knowledge, and for good reason. Knowledge is the really important stuff. But other thinkers throughout the ages, in particular philosophers, have been focused on what this word idea is all about. Descartes, for example, in his profound work, Meditations on First Philosophy, published in 1641, following the tradition of which he and his contemporaries were a part, spoke of certain ideas as being clear and distinct, he wrote. Such ideas, he thought, could not possibly be false. So a clear and distinct idea of himself, for example, was something he thought that couldn't possibly have an error contained within it. So he wrote, for example, quoting Descartes here, quote, 
Because I know certainly that I exist, and that meanwhile I do not remark that any other thing necessarily pertains to my nature or essence, excepting that I am a thinking thing, I rightly conclude that my essence consists solely in the fact that I am a thinking thing, or a substance whose whole essence or nature is to think. And although possibly, or rather certainly, as I shall say in a moment, I possess a body with which I am very intimately conjoined, yet because on the one side I have a clear and distinct idea of myself inasmuch as I am only a thinking and unextended thing, and as on the other I possess a distinct idea of body inasmuch as it is only an extended and unthinking thing, it is certain that this I, that is to say my soul, by which I am what I am, is entirely and absolutely distinct from my body and can exist without it, end quote. Which, as we can see there, in the light of modern physics, of computation, and epistemology, of personhood, he's quite right about almost all of that, except for this desire to be certain of it all. And this certainty is in some way established by the so-called clearness and distinctness of the idea that he holds in his mind. He desires certainty because his view, Descartes' view of knowledge and epistemology, is to have a solid foundation on which to build the rest of the totally reliable edifice of knowledge. He's not alone in this tradition, even through to today. People want certainly true axioms and certainly true rules of inference, allowing them to infer, deduce, or conclude certainly true knowledge as consequences logically implied and as certain as those axioms one began with. It's not about problem solving so much as proving true what one believes or thinks. It's all very dogmatic. Yet, uh, still, Descartes is correct that what he, as a person, is, is a thinking thing, and that he could indeed exist distinct from his body and could exist without it. This, in modern parlance, is just a consequence of substrate independence, substrate independence of the mind in this particular case. Descartes got there by reasoning this through from rather dubious premises. We can get there now as a matter of good explanations. Namely, we as people are thinking things, and what it means to think is that we have a mind that runs on the brain but is not identical to the brain. The former, the mind, is a special kind of software running on the hardware that is the brain. But all of that is by the by for what animates my present discussion here. What is an idea? Descartes offers little by way of explanation here, but perhaps he touches upon our question as to where ideas come from later on in his meditations, where he writes, and again, bear with me, because it's written in the rather obscure style to which philosophers of his era were fond, Descartes writes, quote, There is certainly further in me a certain passive faculty of perception, that is, of receiving and recognising the ideas of sensible things, but this would be useless to me, and I could in no way avail myself of it, if there were not either in me or in some other thing, another active faculty, capable of forming and producing these ideas. But this active faculty cannot exist in me inasmuch as I am a thing that thinks, 
seeing that it does not presuppose thought, and also that those ideas are often produced in me without my contributing in any way to the same, and often even against my will. It is thus necessarily the case that the faculty resides in some substance different from me, in which all the reality which is objectively in the ideas that are produced by this faculty is formally or eminently contained, as I remarked before, end quote. <laughs> so what's he saying here? Well, there he's admitting that there is something in him which he's calling, quote, an active faculty capable of forming and producing these ideas, end quote, which come from, quote, a certain passive faculty of perception, end quote. So here, Descartes saying he thinks perception is passive. In other words, no interpretation is needed. You just perceive in a rather unproblematic way. There's a lot of modern philosophers that think that way too. But uh, this happens to be a problem for anyone who wants to account for things like optical illusions or indeed just hallucinations that people have. What we think we perceive just might not be so. Never mind what idea we then go on to form about that first sense impression. What we are are minds. Those minds are connected to senses via nerves and who knows what neurons might fire or nerves might go haywire to deliver us a perception, apparently, of something that just isn't there. We cannot ever rule out this possibility entirely and thus we should remain fallibilists who understand that we are guessing at the world and always interpreting the apparent contents of our minds. We may guess reliably well and come to solve our problems some of the time, but none of that ever confers certainty, which is Descartes' mistake. His mistake is the error of mistaking some good, though possibly false, explanations for certain truth. He's confusing good explanations for certain truth. He just could not imagine how he could possibly be wrong about some things, like his own existence. And on that basis, his lack of imagination, he thought he proved himself infallible at times, on some topics at least, and he's not alone in that. Whatever the case, Descartes reached the unsurprising conclusion that ideas originate within him, and sometimes against his will. <laughs> Very well, there's little to quibble with there. Uh, let's move on to Immanuel Kant. Kant, in his celebrated Critique of Pure Reason, which, by the way, is a book that Karl Popper himself praised as being a great advance in epistemology for its almost, but not quite, outline of his own critical rationalist philosophy. <laughs> Kant, likewise, cannot tell us where ideas come from, but in the second part of his vast tome, titled Division II, Transcendental Dialectic, he does write in a chapter titled On the Ideas in General, before he gets to specifics on his more major topic, which is about transcendental ideas, he writes, quote, this is Kant, in the great wealth of our languages, the thinking mind nevertheless often finds itself at a loss for an expression that exactly suits its concept, and lacking this, is able to make itself rightly intelligible neither to others nor even to itself. Coining new words is a presumption to legislate in language that rarely succeeds, and before we have recourse to this dubious means, it is advisable to look around in a dead and learned language to see if an expression occurs in it that is suitable to this concept. 
And even if the ancient use of this expression has become somewhat unsteady, owing to the inattentiveness of its authors, it is better to fix on the meaning that is proper to it, even if it is doubtful whether it always had exactly this sense, than to ruin our enterprise by making ourselves unintelligible, end quote. Now, I love that from Kant because this is something I often go on about. <laughs> if you've been a fan of TopCast for a while, you know I don't like neologisms. So I think that what Kant is saying there in that, just that short passage, I'm going to come to what he's saying about ideas, is well worth reflecting on. It's good advice to modern thinkers today. Avoid coining new words. <laughs> there is rarely a good reason to come up with neologisms unless at the last you are utterly exhausted of all other options. For one, it confuses your interlocutor who has never heard your new word before. And on the other, you can mistake inventing a word with discovering something real, which is often my problem with people who like to invent new words. And possibly, in some cases, you might be inclined perhaps to deceive your reader that you've discovered something new when in fact you've done little more than what, let's say, J.R.R. Tolkien did when he coined the term hobbit. He, Tolkien, at least totally understood he was writing complete fiction and was not intent on deceiving anyone, much less himself. We cannot be quite so generous with certain other modern thinkers who proffer all kinds of new vocabulary and acronyms in order to conjure the pretense of deep investigation. Anyway, perhaps I'm being a little mean. Kant does go on later in the same passage to write, and here he gets the stuff about ideas, quote, this is Kant again, Plato made use of the expression idea in such a way that we can readily see that he understood by it something that not only could never be borrowed from the senses, but that even goes far beyond the concepts of the understanding with which Aristotle occupied himself since nothing encountered in experience could ever be congruent to it. Ideas, for him, are archetypes of things themselves and not, like the categories, merely the key to possible experiences. In his opinion, they flowed from the highest reason, through which human reason partakes in them. Our reason, however, now no longer finds itself in its original state but must call back with toil the old, now very obscure ideas through a recollection, which is called philosophy. I do not wish to go into any literary investigation here in order to make out the sense which the sublime philosopher combined with his word. I note only that when we compare the thoughts that an author expresses about a subject in ordinary speech as well as in writings, it is not at all unusual to find that we understand him even better than he understood himself, since he may not have determined his concept sufficiently and hence sometimes spoke or even thought contrary to his own intention. End quote from Kant. And so Kant goes on in similar vein. Now, we can admit here that it may well be that we understand some writer better than, as Kant says, he understands himself. Or, <laughs> as equally often, we may both misunderstand the thing being written about by that author, at least to some extent. Kant here seems to be suggesting that Plato understood 
by that word or term idea, something closer to what I'd be calling knowledge. After all, here he's using that word idea as being a thing that refers to, quote, things themselves, end quote. But then not all ideas refer to things or real things at least. Now, some can rightly be said not to refer to anything at all, let alone to a thing itself. Okay, so I'm nitpicky here and it'd be good to be able to talk to Kant about what he actually meant. But uh, let's say, for example, the idea of a fairy. Well, the idea of a fairy is not referring to anything real. It's just an imaginary thing. So I don't know what fairies themselves can mean. As I like to say, or as I'm saying here, an idea is a guess, an attempt at representing something possible. <laughs> Logically possible anyway, not necessarily physically possible. In any case, Kant is not being particularly helpful for our project here. He's deeply focused on categorizing ideas, but never really grapples precisely with what ideas are, let alone where they come from. So lastly for now, let me consider the work of the great David Hume on all of this. And Hume authored many books, but in particular, he authored a book titled An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding. And chapter two of that book is itself titled, quote, On the Origin of Ideas, end quote. <laughs> so that's promising. That would seem to be the jackpot when it comes to me searching for an answer to my original question. That being, where do ideas come from? Well, okay, so spoiler alert. Unfortunately, we've got to prepare for disappointment. For although Hume is my personal nomination for the greatest philosopher of the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, which I would say is a notable achievement among the luminaries, which include the aforementioned Descartes and Kant, but also people like Locke and Leibniz, Spinoza, Berkeley, uh, Voltaire, Burke, Godwin and Rousseau. Uh, but then I've always been fascinated by the question of personhood, which I think Hume made far more sense on than any of those other heretofore mentioned people. So with all of that preamble, let me read sections from Of the Origin of Ideas and distill out what there may be in this section of his writing. By the way, it's perhaps worth noting that John Stuart Mill, he was from the 19th century. That's why he doesn't get a mention in my, <laughs> my favourite philosophers of that era. Okay, so Hume. Hume begins in this section on of the origin of ideas with, quote, this is from Hume, everyone will readily allow that there is a considerable difference between the perceptions of the mind when a man feels the pain of excessive heat or the pleasure of moderate warmth and when he afterwards recalls to his memory this sensation or anticipates it by his imagination, end quote. Well, so everyone will readily allow, says Hume. That's a terrible appeal to the masses. I don't know about this. I don't think everyone. Uh, for example, Descartes himself had already explained why this could not be readily allowed. Yeah, okay, we can say there is a difference in general between perceiving a hot thing and remembering that hot thing. But we can never be sure we're not hallucinating or dreaming or just making an error in our recollection. Yet, Hume goes on to say, quote, These faculties may mimic or copy the perceptions of the senses, but they never can entirely reach the force 
and vivacity of the original sentiment. The utmost we say of them, even when they operate with greatest vigor, is that they represent their object in so lively a manner that we could almost say we feel or see it. But, except the mind be disordered by disease or madness, they never can arrive at such a pitch of vivacity as to render these perceptions altogether undistinguishable, end quote. Well, to my mind, that sounds like an admission that the mind can indeed be disordered. But it need not be disordered by just disease or madness, as Hume says. Simple errors can make recalling and experiencing sometimes confusing. But none of this is actually relevant to the origin of ideas beyond the fact he is trying to say, he, Hume, is trying to say, some perception from outside causes a sensation in the mind. Okay, very well. He also makes a distinction later between a man who is angry and a man who recalls what it is like to be angry. Again, all very well, but none of this explains exactly where those ideas come from, only that you've got these two categories and that they arise in the mind and themselves can be explained. Uh, the idea of being angry can be explained by the events causing you know, someone to be upset. And the idea of remembering anger can be explained by recalling to mind the sensation of what it's like to be angry. Okay, big deal. In any case, Hume does want to divide all the contents of the mind into two kinds, which he calls impressions, which are perceptions like the scalding heat of tea that is too hot, or the anger one feels when having been robbed or assaulted, let's say. So he's comparing that, which are he's calling impressions, versus ideas, which include remembering all of those things. Hume writes on all of this, quote, Here, therefore, we may divide all the perceptions of the mind into two classes or species, which are distinguished by their different degrees of force and vivacity. The less forcible and lively are commonly denominated thoughts or ideas. The other species want a name in our language and in most others, I suppose because it was not requisite for any, but philosophical purposes, to rank them under a general term or appellation. Let us therefore use a little freedom and call them impressions, employing that word in a sense somewhat different from the usual. By the term impression then, I mean all our more lively perceptions when we hear or see or feel or love or hate or desire or will. And impressions are distinguished from ideas which are the less lively movements above mentioned, end quote. Well, well, <laughs> that's all very imprecise to me. He's just distinguishing between the so-called force upon the mind of these things. So he's saying, you know, actually experiencing burning your mouth is an impression, but remembering the burning sensation, well, that's an idea. But, you know, to my mind, you know, just, just remember a funny joke and the first time you heard it. I have the experience in many cases of the so-called impression, according to Hume, being identical to the so-called idea. Both can elicit in me the same kind of silly joy over and over again with a very long half-life at times. But, but perhaps that is just me. And once I forget the joke or the stand-up routine or whatever for a little while, then later on, you know, a day or a week later, I can recall it again 
and with full force experience the joy and the laughter again just as much as I did the first time I heard it. That's a strange thing that I think Hume's account of what's going on here doesn't account for. Uh, The same is true, not just of jokes and stand-up routines, but uh, my experience of music. The recollection and the first experience can sometimes have the same kind of profound emotional experience. The impression and the idea can be conflated here. But never mind that. Just just consider dreams. Are they ideas or impressions? They can't be impressions on Hume's view because they're coming wholly from within. And he wants to say that, well, it's when the thing is coming from without, the perception, that's the thing that makes all the difference. The force or the vivacity, as he is saying, is caused by something from without leaving this impression on your mind. But in a dream... The profound fear or joy or whatever the emotion is and the sensation they elicit is indistinguishable between the dream and reality. Because we only experience reality in our minds, we have to interpret it. If we interpret some mental content as going on now, then it feels more forceful in general. But if we interpret it as having passed already some time ago, we will not experience it as being present and forceful. Look, I, I can recommend what Hume says on all of this, where he goes on to write more. He writes in total about 10 dense paragraphs on this distinction between impressions and ideas. It, it's worth reading just to get the gist of what the great man said on all of this, and because it, it did have an influence on what other people have thought about this over time. But as I've already suggested... Prepare for disappointment when it comes to actually grappling with the origin of ideas or where ideas come from. That ideas can be explained by recourse to stuff happening out there in reality, impressions, or being recalled by memory, ideas, does not actually explain how they both arise, the impressions and the ideas, in the mind. It just says that they do. I want more than this, and especially I want to know, when trying to create something new, where do those ideas come from? Where does innovation come from and our new creations? Where did Hume get the idea for his very own work, An Inquiry into Human Understanding? It can't have come from outside, could it? But nor could it have been recalled. He seems to have missed the most important kind of idea that is not mere perception or impression, as he is calling it, nor recollection, his idea of ideas, but rather a new creative thought. This is the most important kind of idea for us to account for. Let's account for solutions to our problems, you know, a a new composition, a new theory or explanation, and, and so on. None of this is accounted for by Hume's writing right there. Of course, he does try to say, admittedly, later on, that you know the idea of, let's say, a golden mountain is about recalling what the term golden means and also separately recalling what the term mountain means. And so then creativity, in this sense, is some sort of combination of these pre-existing ideas. But that's kind of a form of pure deduction 
that Hume, of course, was completely trapped into thinking that ideas and knowledge could only come either from this kind of deduction, the logical combination of ideas like that, golden and mountain, to give us the idea of a golden mountain, <laughs> or induction, the logical derivation of ideas from the senses, a kind of empiricism, or from repeated observations and so on. But none of that leaves any room whatsoever for genuine imagination and creativity and guesswork. It is an attempt, in other words, to create a logic of creativity by denying actual creativity. Okay, so let's move on from the great, though terribly misconceived, philosophers of that classic era. Let us consider instead what it is to have an idea as a matter of subjectivity. We can ignore reductionist physicalist answers, namely that ideas are nothing but neural firings or some such. As we have already said, this rather misses the point. If I have an idea that begins in that form, which is to say in the form of neural firings, I can write it down onto paper and it remains an idea for it can be passed on to anyone who then reads the paper and has some version of it kindled in their own mind as they try to guess the meaning of the scribbles on the paper. But do all ideas count as knowledge? Well, we've already seen that no, no, they, they cannot. Let us recall from earlier and take these things a little bit further now by saying all ideas will count as a kind of information, but not all ideas are useful, so they can't possibly count as knowledge. After all, knowledge is useful information. Knowledge solves a problem and that's what makes it useful. Not all useful information goes on to get replicated. And so because not all knowledge goes on to get replicated, which is to say not all knowledge counts as a meme or as being mimetic. You know, for example, I might have the idea one day of, I don't know, adding a teaspoon of golden syrup to black coffee and calling it golden coffee to myself. To me, this idea becomes knowledge, but if no one else ever learns I do this, it never becomes a meme. It's just some private knowledge. Useful to me, perhaps, but it never goes any further than that. Or to belabor my trope example from earlier, the knowledge of where I left my keys, and not, for example, in the lounge room, may be useful information to me that solves a problem that I have, but will likewise never get replicated because it's not solving anyone else's problem and so it's not going to be communicated to anyone else the instant after I pick up my keys and then go on for the rest of my life completely forgetting I ever had that problem the moment I find out where my keys are. In any case, all ideas, all knowledge, counts as conjectural. It is guessed and so we should not be surprised that the overwhelming majority of it is false. Indeed, we can argue that all of it, in the final analysis, must turn out to be false, as even if we think we have hit the proverbial nail on the head in describing or explaining reality, we will find eventually some misconception we have, or some failing in our claims about the world. Electrons orbit the nucleus. It turns out to be not quite right. The word orbit doesn't capture the motion of an electron around the nucleus in the same way that it does when you say planets orbit the sun. And as for orbiting the nucleus, is that perfectly correct? 
or is the motion of the nucleus and the electrons about some common center of a combination of mass and charge? My other trope example from mathematics, that through two points a single straight line can be drawn, well, that axiom of Euclid turns out not to be universally correct once one understands there exist geometries beyond that described by a flat two-dimensional space. But this claim about the ultimate fallaciousness of all ideas has not allowed us to make any progress towards answering that question, which is animating us here. Where do ideas come from? <laughs> they come from minds. Okay, very well. But how? Well, we just do not know how. Are all ideas variations on other ideas we've already had in the past? Uh, that seems to lead to some kind of infinite regress, stretching back in time to, if not our moment of personal conception of our personal consciousness, perhaps back to the first person ever that had consciousness of some kind and was aware of having some idea. Well, that's also no answer. And so I'm going to make another kind of claim. I'm going to claim that this very question, where do ideas come from, itself contains a misconception. It cries out for an answer to do with the source of our knowledge. In other words, it's the wrong question. And they can be wrong questions. Consider, if I was to ask, what being designed the shape of Australia? Well, the real question is, what processes led to the shape that Australia now has. In similar fashion, asking about where ideas come from is itself misleading. It points the way down a path that is an epistemological cul-de-sac. We know we have ideas. Minds have them. But we do not know how. We're not going to know how until we know how minds work in fine detail. So for now, and instead, a more profitable avenue to begin down is to ask what sorts of things allow creativity to flourish? Equivalently, under what conditions will better ideas arise, given we know they do arise in minds? So let us replace the question of where do ideas come from with how can creativity be helped to flourish. This, the astute reader or listener will notice, is but this particular author and speaker's pale imitation of, or riffing upon, just one movement in the great symphony of Karl Popper's epistemology, where he, the original composer of all of this, wrote in his 1960 essay, Knowledge Without Authority, wherein he offered to the world a way forward with, quote, I wish to replace the question of the sources of our knowledge by the entirely different question. How can we come to detect and eliminate error? End quote. And thus, in exactly the same vein, I wish to replace the question of where ideas come from by the entirely different question. How can we come to maximize creativity? Maximizing creativity or perhaps the somewhat more modest question of better allowing creativity to flourish, simply is 
about most effectively detecting and correcting or eliminating errors. It is in the opinion of this author that maximizing creativity happens best when the creative entity, namely a mind, a person, is free, liberated from coercion and nurtured with good health and reasonable wealth to be able to explore the space of ideas. This takes time and freedom. Those are the ingredients. We cannot say where the ideas will come from, but that they might better flourish in a garden of freedom given the passage of time and the watering of good health and the sunlight of reasonable wealth is all we can say for now. Time to explore, energy to reflect, and no shadow of coercion upon the process might best allow the person to maximize their creativity. This does not mean solutions will come, but rather that the opportunity that they present themselves is greater than when compared to a situation where time is being restricted unnecessarily or a person is coerced into thinking about things they would prefer not to, such as poor health or an inability to pay their bills or know where the next meal is coming from or concerns about the welfare of their loved ones, let's say. It is well known, for example, that Isaac Newton, sequestered away during a pandemic, authored his Principia Mathematica. Albert Einstein did much of his best work outside of mainstream academia while gainfully employed, but with seemingly quite an amount of freedom day to day to explore his ideas. But on the other hand, we must also admit that at times a sense of urgency can help. A goal in place to manufacture a vaccine, or get to the moon, or first construct the fission or fusion bomb. So perhaps only sometimes for some people does splendid isolation work so well. Other times, the buzz of a motivated team is the fertile ground that allows ideas to germinate, sprout, and then become a veritable forest of flourishing originality. People are different one from another, and so the best prescription is often simply to ask them what works best for them if you want something out of them or who just wish to help them be their best so you can be your best. Contemplatives, meditators, and those practiced in careful introspection and exploration of their own minds have long known that ideas seem to simply arise in consciousness. This is quite consistent with the Papirian view that everything in our minds is an interpretation. We are minds, the things that have ideas, or that create ideas, that form ideas, and so on. But ideas are themselves interpretations. We are what have ideas. We are what create them and criticize them so as to refine and improve them. That's the way we find solutions. But no solution or idea is identical to us. The mind, the creative, conjecturing, guessing thing we are, is itself unchanging, but provides new content all the time. The empty stage is itself unchanged, even though cast, crew, and set pieces come and go. The mind and its contents are different things. Ideas as I have said, are abstractions that capture possibility. They arise only for most of them to pass away. 
criticized and lost to the vacuum of unconsciousness again. If I am right that ideas come from the equivalent of something like a mind singularity, then all this is saying is that what we know so far of epistemology fails to account for their creation, and thus the question of where do ideas come from, when given the answer, a singularity in the mind, is just another way of saying our best explanation right now is silent on the matter as to where ideas come from. But what it is not silent on is how best to allow more and better ideas to arise. In general, that is a state completely divorced from coercion and liberal with time devoted to thinking, for then conjectures can arise, and conjectures criticizing those conjectures can also arise, and the whole wheel of progress turns and improvement comes on, not inevitably, but nonetheless relentlessly. For now, I have an idea. I should turn this whole article into a podcast. For you, go enjoy creating, criticizing, and considering some new ideas. That's what you are, and that's what you do. If you've enjoyed or at all found any of this content useful, please consider supporting me on Patreon. To find the links to this, go to www.bretthall.org. Thank you for any and all support. Until next time, bye-bye.